Dear Father in heaven, thank you for uh, thank you for bringing me back here safely. Thank you for for Pastor Newton and for your abundant provision for your church. Lord, for the opportunity we have to discuss today as the people of God, enlighten our hearts and minds, give us a deeper understanding of our neighbors, of their longings and wants and needs, and how your gospel uh, meets those and how you meet people where they are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, today the topic is, oh yeah, Court, go ahead. I, I have a question about the word in the sermon. Okay. Yes, it was Greek. Bob, I saw you roll your eyes when I, when I said it. You're like, oh, here he goes. But uh, homothumadon is the word. Homothumadon. I know, it sounds like it's, it's been extinct for a while uh, from the Jurassic era. But um, yeah, homothumadon. I first heard that when I was in high school. Our pastor said it, and it's always stuck with me. I just, it's, it's a fun word to say, but it's a really profound theological concept. And in the book of Acts, it shows up, I don't know, maybe a dozen times in the book of Acts and it continually describing this was the character of the people of God, having this, it's, it's the kind of unity, it's a spirit-wrought unity, put it that way. It's, you can't have that just um, you know, by having shared affinities, but it's the kind of unity in heart, mind, soul, and body that comes as a work of the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, homothumadon, there you go. All right, today in the, the study and the discussion, we're talking about uh, what gives you the right, okay, this charges laid against Christians. And I want to start, it comes up in the video, but I want to start by um, asking you this. Is because I said so a valid reason for a parent to give a rule or command? Why or why not? What do you guys think? Is that a, is that a valid reason? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It worked for me. It worked for you. <laughs> Anybody disagree? Anybody say, uh, yeah, Kim, you're... I mean, it's an old adage, Yeah. Course. Sure, <laughs> but it's maybe not the most effective. Yeah, I think especially in this, as we, as you just alluded to, we are not far off in this country um, for you know being you know post-Christian, and yeah. we have got to give our kids an opportunity to be able to think and to know sure. why. Yes. And be able to answer that question. Yep. Good. You're. You're spot on. I mean, I think we need to ultimately know um, for ourselves and for our children, for the next generations, why do we do what we do? Not just because I said so, not even just because God said so, but because God gives us, he lays out his rationales, his reason for how he's doing it. Now, can it still have a useful, <laughs> can it still be useful in the context of a family? One of the things that you learn in a family um, in terms of our faith is uh, honoring your elders, honoring your parents, right? Following authority. So there's a, a place for that, too. Yeah, lesson. Many times we get to the point, you know, clean your room. Why? Because it's a mess. It needs to be cleaned up. Why? And it goes on and on. Well, then you get to the because I said so. Right. Yeah. And sometimes it can be just your last ditch, right? Right. <clears throat> but it's funny you mentioned that example, too. It's going to come up in the, in the video. Yeah, go ahead, Ruth. Ultimately, though, it's a cop-out. Okay. Oh, yeah. Because... I've got nothing else to say because I said so. Because I said so, yeah. I was trying to find a picture of the billboard. I've seen a billboard on, I don't know if I saw it on 31 or where I saw it, but um, it was, it's a billboard for adoption, I think. And it's, it's like, because I said so, we'll talk about this later, your dad will tell you, and, it's, and then the tagline underneath of it is something like, there's no perfect parents, right? <laughs> I, I appreciate that too. Like, we're all just you know, trying to figure it out along the way. But yeah, Becky. I think sometimes it's necessary in, a, in an emergency. 
So the relationship mm. and the trust has to be there. Yes. But if I say, get out of the road, and yeah. someone who's two says, why? Give me, I'm not going to say, well, there's a semi-truck coming. It's <laughs> yeah. 60 miles per hour. It's now. Right. And I think I've been in that case with God. And God says, you need to do this. Yes. It doesn't matter if I can wrap my pretty little brain around Correct. it or yeah. not. He said to do it. Yeah. Because I said so. Very good. Okay, good. Hold, so hold that thought then. So the objection today, we're going to um, turn to the video here in just a moment. People will say that Christian faith in, in its one-size-fits-all absolute truth is an impediment to individual or communal freedom. Christians have no right to tell others how to live their lives. All right, buckle up. It's a good, good video, good conversation for today. Everyone who considers Christianity brings heartfelt questions and intellectual objections born out of real-life experiences. They're looking for answers, but even more, they're looking for a safe place to ask their questions. Join me as I meet with a group of people who don't believe in the Christian faith to discuss six of the most common objections to Christianity. Welcome to The Reason for God. discussion together on the reason for God. We're talking about issues that make Christianity uh, untenable for many, many people. And our topic for tonight, let me read it, sounds like this. What gives you the right to tell me how to live my life? Why are there so many rules? Let me flesh that out. Uh, Christianity is often seen as an enemy of freedom, of authentic personhood, social cohesion, because it appears that Christians are telling everybody else how they ought to live their lives instead of uh, letting them, giving them the right to decide what is right or wrong for them. Uh, there's a philosopher, Diderot, who had a very quaint little saying. He said, there will be no freedom until the last king is strangled on the entrails of the last priest. <laughs> and I'm hoping nobody here takes that literally, for my own sake. But it's, he's saying it in a very startling way, but his main point is that religion is as much an enemy uh, of freedom as totalitarianism. See, in other words, a king is as bad as a priest. What do you think? I mean, I know that's an overstatement, but do you believe, do you think that uh, Christian moral claims are an impediment to freedom? What do you think? No, because a, a king has absolute power when a priest has has barriers to power. I think my, my problem is, like, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what freedom means. It sounds like an eddy question, but um, <laughs> I think it's difficult for me to understand what the rules actually are. Isn't that what psychotherapy is about, though? Breaking rules that we've made for ourselves that are unsuccessful? We ask ourselves why our life isn't working out. And just, just to add on that, it seems like a lot of it is actually just human interpretation. Like what is actually solid foundation, what uh, the actual beliefs are, and what is interpretation by, uh, I guess, humans as to what what they actually think it is. So it comes down to that. You would think his original question is like, who tells you how to live your life? And with the Constitution, as like a government, whether it's a king or a president, it's something that can be changed, something that people could express their need to be amended. And with the Bible, there's really not that option. 
I feel like everybody has rules, and I believe that whether your parents give them to you, or a pastor, or a priest, or a teacher, or a babysitter, or a brother, or a sister, or a, an employer, everybody will give you rules. But it doesn't matter. If the only way that you will follow those rules is if you respect the person that's giving them to you. This question is very interesting. The question is, who gives you the right to tell me how to live my life, and why are there so many rules? Um, I think we're we're talking about within a Christian framework, and I think I'd like to sort of go up and out just a little bit because I think that's a good sort of question that you know someone who's not of the faith can talk about. I I believe there are at every moment in our life we're following someone's rules. Period. It's not sort of biblical. We follow parent rules. We follow economic policy. Those are ways of rules are enforced. So we can't really escape it. It's just a matter of no being conscious of knowing whose rules we're following. And then that said, I think structure or rules, I, I, I sort of equate the two, are necessary for freedom. I think there's actually, we can have, it's called an abyss of liberty where there's too much freedom, and then you, you become paralyzed because there's too many options. So I think, I think freedom and rules actually are, are, are one of the same. I think you need both. You can't have one without the other. Actually, I think there's, Eddie's been two, made two statements. I'd love to hear you out on, on them. The first one is that everybody does have rules. Everybody does make uh, a, a decision about what is right and wrong, and then you feel like you ought to follow them. They are rules for you, and you feel a sense of obligation, and you, you can't just shrug them off. And so you, I think, are saying that it's not just Christians, and it's not even just religious people, but actually everybody comes up with a decision about what is right and what is wrong, feels obligated, and therefore everybody's working off rules. I think they exist, whether they're explicit or not, yes. is, is another question. What is rest of Home rules are self-imposed at some level. I mean, you have to take responsibility for what you're going to follow, but of all the things that Eddie was saying, even going to sleep, or, we have to follow these things that are self-generated. Not just self-generated, I mean, I've got young kids, so I'm, we're, we're busy imposing rules every day. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, and the rules are empowering in the sense of if they, weren't, if they didn't follow the rules, for example, they wouldn't have friends. You know, if they didn't follow the rules, they wouldn't be able to go to school. If they didn't follow the rules, they wouldn't be able to go out by themselves, basically. So we're teaching them rules that help them. So uh, now a lot of what we're teaching them is borrowed from the Bible. Even if we're not you know, Christians, it's still borrowed from the Bible. It's, it's in relationship to the Constitution. It's relationship, in relationship to a lot of other uh, unspoken rules or, or socialization. One of the things is when you, when you, when you say, talk to somebody, you look in their eye. I'm not sure it's in the Bible, but it's in sort of the, the sort of cultural thing that we should, you know, we teach them, basically. Within your culture, though. Within that's, our culture. That's actually exactly. not in my culture. It's yeah. actually yeah, no. threatening to look in the eye a little bit. Actually. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I think I resist that, the idea that um, there is some higher authority that um, knows everything. Um, I don't necessarily resist the idea that there are rules that I can follow or should follow or would be better for me to follow. Um, I have a lot of trouble, however, with the idea that they are written down somewhere, that um, that they are you know, in a book that's two thousand years old or however many thousand years old it is, um, and that uh, you know, sort of doing that or damnation, you know, that kind of thing. I think life at every moment presents us with these moments uh, that we sort of start creating rules, or we, we articulate rules around something like, thou shalt not kill thy neighbor, or covet thy neighbor's wife, or a lot of neighbor stuff. 
Uh, and then, and then what, what happens is they become sort of, you know, we have to transfer these best learning practices, best life practices uh, to our children. And then they become, you know, rules. They become very short, simple rules. And I think that's, a, that, that's what happens. And in the Bible, I think, was uh, a moment in time where instead of just sort of passing it down to your children, we decided to make an attempt to codify it. Uh, in stories and such, and there are a lot of other religions that have done the same. So that's where I think this, this is the meeting point is about roles and structure and, and religion. The, an example I often like to use is, if I eat whatever I want to eat, then I will have terrible health and maybe die in my 40s from a heart attack. If I restrict myself because my body needs certain kinds of food, that is I'm limiting myself, uh, and I, even though it's hard in the short run, in the long run, I thrive. I live a longer time and I can do more things. Or exercise. Um, there's a, <laughs> an exercise, I, I don't like to do exercise because it's very hard work, but in the long run, if I do it, I feel better. And so would it not be, therefore, the case that morally, it's hard to forgive, it's hard to sometimes show respect when you don't want to, it's hard to refrain from certain things, but in the long run, there's more freedom if we refrain. And therefore, by uh, limiting yourself and uh, submitting to some rules, it actually creates freedom instead of uh, diminishing it. You know, there's certain rules associated with Christianity that I don't object to. I think they're beneficial. Most of the Ten Commandments, I think, fall into that category. I think what I'm primarily concerned with and really curious about are the rules that are served to ostracize others and to um, demonize others. I think the deepest value being honored in all of this is still the value of reciprocity. And that's kind of what where it all comes from. Like if, if all of us have it, because if we didn't, there would be no morality or rules. If we don't believe that we all should have the same similar rules apply to us, none of this works. So we all kind of come from there. And therefore like a genocide notion won't work because you know we don't want it done on us and so we're not gonna do it onto them. That's right. that's sort of the foundation for me. But you would say it's wrong, not just in practical. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe your point. Yeah, that's that's an interesting okay. thing to think about. That, that makes sense. Our, our passion with following that might come from some un underlying feeling of sacredness. I mean, it's just not that it is, um, you know, the reciprocity. I don't have to experience some form of genocide to form an opinion about it. I have this overwhelmingly passion. I feeling that there that any life should be protected if I can step in. Right. But where did that come from? I don't know where that comes from. I think it's impossible to avoid not observing rules in any part of your life. Uh, Stravinsky, who was a huge influence on me, always said that he felt most free when he had rules in his own life. I think that if there are rules, at some point, no matter what anyone says, we end up adopting them as our own. So I don't really know if I believe in externally imposed rules. Um, so I had a question. Um, what is the Christian view of homosexuality? Um, there three, there's three parts of, three things that Christians say, I think, that have to do with homosexuality. Um, first of all, the Good Samaritan parable, um, and the very model of Jesus dying for uh, people who were opposing him, means that all Christians are duty-bound to love and serve their neighbors, regardless of their beliefs, regardless of whether they're people of other faiths, people with different uh, views of sexuality, we are supposed to make this city a great place for everybody to live in regardless of their beliefs. That's, the, that's important. In other words, we have to love people regardless of where they are on that, in the spectrum of belief. Secondly, uh, 
the gospel of, of Christianity, which is that you're saved not by good doctrine, not by your good works, but by sheer unmerited grace. It pulls out the self-righteousness and the superiority that tends to go along with religious belief, which uh, has actually made a lot of gay people suffer. A lot of gay people have suffered under that kind of attitude, and I think the gospel takes that away from us, and that is good for gay people. Thirdly, uh, when the Bible tells us something about how we should live, like sex, money, power, it always does it like this. It says, God created us, and therefore God in his word in the Bible is giving you directions for how you should live in accord with your own design. It's not busy work. It's like when the owner's manual comes to a car, it says, change the oil every so many thousand miles. It's not busy work. It's saying that's how the car was designed. You know, if you, uh, if you violate that, you're actually hurting the car. So the Bible does say uh, sex is for a man and a woman inside marriage to nurture love and commitment in a long-term permanent relationship of marriage, which means polygamy, it means sex outside marriage, it means homosexuality are considered violations of God's will, but also uh, violations of our own design. So the Bible is actually saying you're missing out if you do those things. So the Christian view of homosexuality is you're going against your own design and you're actually missing out on God's best for you. I believe there's some rules or stories that uh, basically object or uh, think that homosexuality is a sin. I think that might be a rule in spirit was trying to be helpful, but I think played out in contemporary society can be very problematic. Uh, more problematic in the sense that because it's stated in the Bible, discussion ends about it. It's just that's what the Bible says. And I think that is the more damaging dynamic that results uh, from Bible rules, I would say. Let me make a proposal. One of the problems I think that we often run into is that we, from the outside, that is if you're not a kind of an inside Christian believer, it's a little hard to understand how rules actually function inside Christian faith. They actually don't operate the same way that rules and morals operate in other philosophical systems and religious systems like this. Traditional religion says, if I obey the rules, then God accepts me. Whereas Christianity says that because I believe in Christ who has done everything for me, he's died in my place and so on, I'm accepted, and therefore I obey the rules. Okay, so one approach is, I obey the rules, then God accepts me. Christian idea is, uh, even though I, you know, I'm not good enough, God has saved me, he's forgiven me through Jesus, and therefore I'm accepted, and then I obey the rules. God accepts me because of Jesus, but I believe in him, and then I obey the rules. Now think about this, how different this is. Two people, a religious person, in this sense, and a Christian, could be sitting there next to each other. They both could be Giving their, giving their money to the poor, telling the truth, you know, raising their children, doing this, but for totally different reasons. Because the religious person is doing it largely in order to get something from God, and also, if he's doing it, he feels pretty good about it, like, hey, I'm a pretty good person. A Christian person is doing it just to find a way to love the God who saved him. And so, for Christians, the rules is not the center. Uh, for a more traditional religious person, the rules are the center. It's what makes me what I am. 
to me, that, that, that difference is enormous. I wouldn't even be a minister if I didn't believe in that difference. And I do everything I can to pull people off of the, the first approach to rules into the second approach. Now, does that, is that clarifying to you? Does that help in any way? Just throw out something that to help me understand. I'm trying to understand the dichotomy that you presented. In, in, in a sense, what I'm hearing is acceptance of Jesus and, and God within the Christian paradigm that you've articulated is tantamount to the love that a child, a parent has for the child. It's unconditional, it's just there. The child doesn't have to work through its lifetime to earn it, it's just there. Right. Versus a love that a friend could have for another friend, where in some senses you have to earn it, you can fall in and out of it. Yes. But it's just there, it's done, and then the idea is if that's the mentality, the mindset, the space, the actions will follow True. accordingly, but you just never lose that, it's just right. there. Occasionally, God okay. is called a friend, but usually he's called a father. I can understand that. I don't like rules where I'm just told to do something um, because. So, like, I actually experienced this, experienced this a lot growing up where, say, my parents would be like, do this. Like, they would order me to, like, you have to go clean your room. I, I would say, why? Because I said so. And that kind of circular <laughs> reasoning for me just it doesn't hit home. I really need a logical prior, a reason for doing this. Like, if they had explained the reason why I should clean my room, like, okay, well, it's more hygienic, it's a good habit to develop if you ever want a girlfriend or anything. Um, all those things, like, the meaning behind it is important to me. I think at one point in my life, I was much more stubborn uh, also at acknowledging the need for rules. I hated being told to do something, but I think at this point in my life, I've come to shed that uh, stubborn shell that I've, I developed over time. So I, I do think a level of rules and some rules are needed and are good but it, it just depends on the context of the rule. Let me wrap up like this. Maybe to help you understand how I see rules working in Christian life. When I was falling in love with my wife, Kathy, um, I just, I actually did research. I talked to her friends. I did everything I could to find out what she liked and what she didn't like. And then I did it, or didn't do it. And when I look back on it, that was obviously, I was making all these changes and people saw that, but it was love and it didn't even feel like obedience. And uh, if you already love somebody and you feel love, then you want to please them. And, and in a sense, you're making changes, but they don't even, it even feel like rules. It's just, it's just an instrument for pleasing the loved one. Now, that's how it starts. Having been married a long time, I want you to know that um, as you get out into the middle of marriage and you're limiting yourself, you know, you're trying to please the other person, it gets really hard unless the other person also limits herself unless she's doing the very, very same thing. And then, if you have 30 or 35 years of it, it can be a wonderful, wonderful kind of deep relationship that would never be gotten to otherwise, unless you had given up the right to live as you wanted and limited yourself to the person. Um, I think that's how it works with God, especially when you consider, we don't just limit ourselves for God, but God actually made sacrifices for us. And only Christianity says that God became human, he went to the cross, so, uh, if I was giving to my wife and she never gave to me, it wouldn't work. If you give to God without having a God who actually has given to you, it wouldn't work. But in the Christian God, you've got somebody like that. Uh, you are great conversation partners, and I'm looking forward to the next time, which won't be too long. And thank you very much for being here and participating. Thank you. All right, well, nothing there to talk about, so we'll just move right along. <laughs>
Oh my goodness. So much. Cool. Um, so much there. Where do you want to start? Anybody want to kick up? Clean my room. Kick some, yeah, right. <laughs> Clean your room. Clean your room. Yeah, go ahead, Janice. I actually did explain to Matthew why he needed to clean his room, why he shouldn't leave leftover chicken nuggets in his closet until they right. molded. It, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm going to call his bluff on that one um, <laughs> because I'm sorry, the, the reasons don't, don't matter that much. Um, and this is what I, I want to share with you, um, I've mentioned before the work of a, a psychologist by the name of Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan Haidt. This is, H-A-I-D-T, not hey, Jonathan, Jonathan Hyde, not a uh, Christian person. I think he's a secular Jewish guy, um, but fascinating, fascinating writing and research. What's that? He's gay as well. Is he gay too? Yeah. Well, just throw the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but he sounds like a Lutheran when he says, this is in his book called The Righteous Mind. He, at the beginning, he says, here's the deal. Everybody is a self-righteous hypocrite. Everyone is a self-righteous hypocrite. We like to think that, oh, we're all perfectly rational and just, uh, you know, as long as I have good reasons, that that's what I'm going to do and I can be persuaded. He says, no, here's, here's how it really works. Everybody has a little press secretary in their heart, in their mind. What's the job of a press secretary? Spin. 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 The job of the press secretary is whatever the boss did, that was the right thing. Okay? He says, we operate in a similar way in our own lives where we kind of will have um, intuitions. We'll have, uh, sorry, markers, oh, Margaret. You can give me for, uh, for Christmas instead of more expo markers. Um, we, kind of, we have intuitions, uh, gut level desires for how we think things should be, right? And then he says, we will all gonna use a fancy Latin phrase here, as ex post facto, after the fact, we will come up with reasons to justify our gut instinct, okay? So what, reason, what our reasons do, they may or may not kind of hang together, but it's almost beside the point, Jonathan Haidt says, because we're just looking, we're just trying to spin what we really want to do uh, anyway. Yeah, Paul, go ahead. Could you grab that green marker that's sitting on your podium there? Oh, right there. Oh, that might work better. That might work better. <laughs> That's good work, too. Um, I think this is significant when we talk about, when we talk about the, the rules or, or law or what have you. Um, I think that we, as Christians, we miss the point if we think that folks are just opposed to it. And if we just give good reasons, that they will, yeah, they'll, they'll come along and say, oh, yeah, you know what? You've given really good reasons for why I should live my life this way. Fact of the matter is, for any of us, when we're living our lives a certain way, we already have this kind of deep personal investment in it. And it could be, when you talk about something like homosexuality, it could very well be because you have family, you have friends who are gay. Uh, you're some, uh, for a particular person, they're in a committed relationship. Like, what am, I, what am I supposed to do? Change my entire life. And it's not about the reasons. Let's give a, you know, a less, um, controversial um, explanation or uh, example. So when you think about even things as simple as, you know, how, how you're eating, like you talked about exercise. 
and I can talk about how your body is a temple. You are created by God, and that you know this is how He has designed you to live, to honor, to have good stewardship of it. And you're like, yes, yes, yes. Eclairs, though. <laughs> you're like, the reason don't. And, and, now, and because I don't always eat eclairs, it's a special thing. Otherwise, I take good care of myself. You know, we immediately go into press secretary mode. We all do this. We all do this. It's part of our sinful human nature. So I just wanted to lay that out there because I think when we talk about the, the rules and the objections that people have, it's not an unimportant conversation, but we're kidding ourselves if we think, oh, this is just a matter of the head and we just need to reason with people and they'll understand because for any of us, we're like, no, this is how I'm living. And that's why the fact that anybody comes to faith as an adult, I mean, it, it's truly a miracle. It's truly, truly a miracle. For anybody to come to faith is a miracle, but especially for else. Yeah. Well, several months ago, you preached a sermon about being a Pharisee. Yes. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I hated that sermon. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. I know. And, but that's, that's always the first step for us, right, Carla? Is to be on, I'm Ryan, and I'm a Pharisee. <laughs> Hi, Ryan. Um, yeah, George. Uh, I was thinking the other day, probably everybody in here, is, and we know the Ten Commandments, that's our rules for living. Yeah. And I was thinking, all of them are gone, except thou shalt not kill. But if you talk about abortion, that's gone. So society as a whole, Ten Commandments don't mean anything to them. It means a lot to us. So they really have no rules. So they kind of make up their own. Make it up as we go. But I would push back on that just a little bit because they did make a point, and I think this is right, that everybody does have rules. It's not that we're living in just you know, utterly lawless society. The question is, what, are, what is the law that people are living under? And does it have any deeper kind of basis? Yes, Andy. But what's interesting to me is that uh, God rescued and freed the slaves before he gave them the Ten Commandments. That's right. Yep. You know, so. Yeah, so uh, Sandy's pointing out how in, in the book of Exodus, God rescues his people, he redeems them, and then he gives them the law. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And it's kind of their charter of life under his reign and rule. Okay, You are a freed people. I've already redeemed you. It underscores Pastor Keller's point. This is not what justifies you before me. You're not acceptable because of the fact that you keep these rules. I've already brought you out of Egypt, but now here's the way that you live with me. Now, he also goes on to say, in especially kind of Old Testament way, that if you are persistent in your disobedience, he doesn't say I'm going to send you back to Egypt, but I'm going to send you into exile. There's going to be consequences for it. Uh, but you're right, that redemption precedes even the obedience. Yeah, Anne? Well, didn't we learn from Chad Foster that, uh, that in Hebrew, the words that we translate as commandments can also be translated connections? Mm. Um, so connections to God, and then yeah. that sort of gives uh, more of a reason for the commandments. Yeah, and these are these are how you these are how you can. Yeah, you walk in uh, walk in His ways. Jesus says, "If you love me, you'll keep my commands." Now that's not an if then in the sense that if um, you know, oh, only if you um, love me, then then you'll do this. He's just saying this is just a natural state of being. Just again, as Pastor Keller gave that example with his wife, which. 
A little bit creepy. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> a little bit. It reminded me of Groundhog Day for that movie. Bill Murray does it. But anyway, um, it's a, if you love me, if you're in relationship with me, then you're going to desire to honor me and to walk in my ways. Just flows naturally. doesn't mean you're going to do it perfectly, but it's that connection point. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, Bob. Well, there's a big shift that takes place in the physical world as well as spiritual. I think you mentioned exercise in the first two months or three months of some specific exercise, you hate it. Yeah. It's external. Right. And you push against it because it's, we naturally push against external rules. I mean, that's just our nature. Huh? Even if we know they're good for us. Right. But over time, whatever that thing is now has internalized and it's something I want. Mm -hmm. It's shifted gears. It's the same with the law of God. Over time, what was external in the Ten Commandments is now internal. And that's what he said, I'll write my law yep. on your hearts mm -hmm. and no one will have to teach you anymore. So if we're in a relationship with the Lord Jesus, I want a heart of his Father. Mm -hmm. Because I, I know that incredible love and what he is. He's all good. So anything he offers to me, it's got to be wonderful. Yeah. And I want that heart as my own heart. I yes. mean, the Psalms are full of that kind of Absolutely. And Unite my heart to fear your name. I in, mean, yep. it's incredible. Um, but it's an intrinsic, and then I'm now disobeying me if I'm going against the rules. Yeah. What do we say in the uh, Confession of Sins? In, in many of our uh, liturgies, we said it, said it today. So that I may delight in your will and walk in your way. So that the Lord would guide my ways to keep your statutes still. Uh, that's, that's that rhythm of it. That now, yeah, with new hearts, God's law is written onto our hearts we want to walk into. Okay, but this is maybe going a little bit afield from the primary question here, which is, okay, so what, what right? Do, that's so nice for you Christians. You've got that heart made new by grace, you say, and you want to walk in the way. Fine, more power to you. Who are you to tell me that I need to walk in this way that I don't want to live? Okay, now how, how do you respond to that? Where, like, where, how can we have that conversation? And is that really even our job as Christians to be going around and telling people, here's how you live? And if it's not, what is? Yeah, go ahead, Jan. I think uh, Keller did a wonderful job of saying, of doing the difference between religion and faith. Uh -huh. Because if you have faith, you want to do as Jesus asks you to. Uh -huh. Whereas religion, you have to follow these rules or you won't be saved, you can't come to your God. So do we do people a disservice? I'm just kind of pushing on this a little bit. Do we pe do people a disservice if we focus on the rules and the ways that they're not following them? Mm -hmm. Yes, yep. Sure we are. Is that, is that giving the message like, okay, so the, the goal really is just to get me to live a certain way. You're just trying, you want my behavior to be a certain way and maybe that must be what faith is all about. This is, I think that this is a, a, something that Christians can be susceptible to. Yes, Sandy. And then, oh. Isn't that what Paul says? I mean, what business do we have for the unbeliever telling them what He does say doing? that. Yeah. yeah, this is not a verse that Christians often go to. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he's like, hey, listen, I'm not talking about the outsiders. Because, of course, they are not going to be following the law of God. He's, he's more talking about within the church. They need the gospel. They need the gospel. So yes. that's what we owe. Yeah. 
Okay, uh, Bob and then George. It's dangerous, I think, on two ways. First, if I start with rules, then I'm going to teach them that the way to God is through rules. Exactly. Right. exactly. The second is I'm asking them to do something they can't do. Correct. Because without Christ and His Spirit, it, I'm going to. Re We're designed by sin to resist rules. In mm -hmm. fact, we hate them right. and we're rebelling. As soon as there's a rule, my flesh is going to say, watch this. The harder you push, the harder I'm going to push back. And yeah. so we're doing them a double disservice. Yeah. Yeah. George. Um, yeah. A little bit about suicide. Oh. It's rampant. Oh, yeah. We've never had anything like this. Now, the psychologists and the writers say we got to do more about mental health. And that's kind of just a euphemism for suicide. Most of these mass killings are suicide perpetrators, I guess yeah, you call sure. them. And they, instead of going, shooting their head off, they want to go out in a blaze of glory. Yeah. You look at them, they're all suicide. Right. They, aren't, they don't intend to get out of it. No. And isn't that a sign of hopelessness? It is. They have no yeah. rules. Yeah. They don't know what to do. The military supposedly has 22 people a day committing suicide. I almost find that hard to believe. I, it's so it's many. I, there was a, a sociologist in the um, 1800s by the name of um, Emil Durkheim. And he uh, looked at how cultures and nations that when they were moving, this was in, in Europe, okay, 1800s, but as they were moving away from religion, and strictures, uh, rules, and what have you, um, they fell into a state of what he called anomie, literally of lawlessness, um, that without any rudders, people uh, increasingly had the sense that life had no meaning, and suicides went way up. That's, what he, that's one of the things he looked at. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is indicative of the fact that people are living without a sense of, of structure, of pattern of order, and then ultimately without, without hope. Um, now, the rules themselves don't give hope, but if, if you don't have any sense of the structure of life, it just can feel chaotic and that, what do I even, where do I go from that? Yeah, Jim and the Pat. Uh, I've always thought complete freedom leads to complete anarchy. Right. By definition. Yeah. You know, we fight for freedom. We have a, a republic that we will fight to the death to protect it. Yeah. Now. But by the same sense, there have to be rules that are going to be followed. Well, or anarchy will persist. Yeah. And if, as Christians, we're to be concerned about bringing others to the faith so that they can be saved, mm -hmm. how do we not convey what is true and written in Scripture yeah. without judging them? Oh, okay, yeah. Okay, that's a good question. Let's come back to that. Go ahead, Pat. Well, I just thought that, you know, when they asked the question about homosexuality, his first example was the Good Samaritan parable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And saying that all Christians, what we're called to do is love and serve each other. Yeah. So that is our first response, to love and serve, right? right? And so when we do that, then that creates friendship and relationship, which you're always talking about. Yeah. And then through that, that gains us maybe the... Um, the privilege of sharing when they ask a question. Yeah. So then there's truth. So yes. when we share, we don't compromise our truth, but we say, you know, because I love Jesus and I know he loves me, I follow what the Bible says and this is what it says, so I Correct. believe yes. that would be good. But we, but we are still friends and we can still respect each other. It's in the context of that relationship. But it takes a yeah. long time, maybe. It, ta right? it can take time. I think that goes, Jim, to your question as well. How do we do that without judgment? When you love someone, the law is never hate speech. 
The law of God is not hate speech. It's not a, a cudgel that we're able to beat people with. Ultimately, the law is God's will, and that, just as he said, this is how, how we live best and flourish as human beings. And so to call people to repentance is to say, listen, who will want what's, what's best for you and God's desire for you? It's not because let me show you how you're wrong and how you're so far so what about John the Baptist and how against the, the current he yeah, went? Yeah, yeah. What about John the Baptist? Uh, so, I mean, this, this is where... If, well, he wasn't politically correct. No, right. Um, but remember, who are the people that he was addressing most fiercely? It was not him going out and calling to the prostitutes. It was him calling to who? Pharisees. The Pharisees. The religious people, precisely those ones who were, as Jesus would say later, you know, um, straining out a gnat. You're not, you're not making the path open for the kingdom of God for those who so desperately need it. Just that particular phrase was interesting because he said that, and you refuse to lift a finger to help yes. those who are perishing. Yeah. That's what we're here for. Mm -hmm. uh, just... I've always struggled with this, and it was kind of articulated in this video, where the, well, the, the question was, and why do you have so many rules? We don't. We're all failures. All have sinned and fallen. I don't know why, it, I mean, it's our failure as Christians to communicate that we are not here about keeping these rules and you will live. That is so totally right. not what Christianity is. Christianity is, I am Ponska. I'm gone. The only reason I am saved is because of him. And the only way you're going to get to people is to show through your behavior, because that's what people see, that you're different. And when you're different, those without hope are going to say, there's a person with hope. And then they're going to ask questions, why do you have hope? Yeah. And that's when yeah. that can happen. You have an opportunity. Yeah, that's exactly correct. Right. Very well put. Thank you. Yeah, Ruta. I was going to say it a long time ago, and you didn't mind it, but then you oh. said, <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, I said this to one of my daughters once. I said, don't you think God knows what's best for you? And that's what the Ten Commandments are. They're just God's statement of what is best for us. It is. And remember what and the... And we also cannot follow them. So somebody yeah. said we, we can only follow them with the Holy Spirit. Even with the Holy Spirit, we're terrible. Yeah, we still, we still don't do it. But, you know, Jesus says to Saul, for he's Paul, why do you kick against the goads, right? Well, and this is what we're so often doing is we're, we're fighting against what's best for us. And God's saying, listen, I, I love you wholly, unconditionally, and this is part, part of my love is that I'm showing you how to live. And we push back against it. And, uh, and yet he continues to pursue us and to, to forgive us. But if we present that to other people in that way, yeah. then it's not like, these are rules you have to follow. Right, right. Yeah, Bill. I, I hope this is appropriate for this, but I'm, if first I'm going to disagree with Bob. A little bit. Careful. The uh, Durkheim was in an area era yeah. when it was lawless. Yeah. It was chaos. And, pardon me, 
Historically, eras of lawlessness and chaos have been followed by an era when somebody rises up and says, I've got the silver bullet. Sure. So, I, and we may be finding ourselves currently in one of those eras that have, we're, we're proceeding forward with uh, what's good for you is not good for me, and what's good for me is not good for you. So we all live by our, our own rules. Mm -hmm. And I, there seems to be some movement towards looking for people who have the answers. Yeah. Because I think, as opposed to what Bob said, many uh, there, there's a part of us that says, I can't take this chaos. I want somebody to put some yeah. structure to it. Yeah. I want somebody to lead me out of this. And uh, when so anyway, I, I think that there are eras in, in history of lawlessness that are followed by uh, Napoleon. Yeah. And then areas of lawlessness followed by right. Lenin. Yeah. Then area, you know, I, I hey, you you're looking for law, I'm here to help, right? That's right. Um, yeah. well I'm case in point, not not to that extreme, but a really uh, popular media figure now, a psychologist by the name of Jordan Peterson. I've talked about Jordan Peterson before. And there's a lot about Jordan Peterson I really like about his his teaching and, and what God's doing in his life. But his book, his first book is literally called 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. Um, especially for young men, um, it's been appealing because there is this sense of just, yeah, it, things are off the rails. I just need somebody to say, incidentally, one of the thing, his famous things is, clean your room. That's what he said. Um, so now they need to hear it, I guess. Oh. Um, so it can definitely be abused. And so uh, Christian, when we proclaim the gospel best, it's when we, we don't just give, here's these isolated laws, do this, here's this rule that you need to do, do that. But it's within this context of the overarching, all-encompassing narrative story of God's love for creation, how he has made you, how he's redeemed you, and now how he's recreating you. And within the context of that relationship with him, here's how you live. As naturally as, you know, thunder follows lightning. This is just indubitably um, what, how we live. And, uh, that's, but that's not the way that we, we too often do lay it out. And so it's natural to just, all right, just give me somebody who will just say this is what you, what you need to do. All right, a couple more and we're going to have to, to wrap up for today. Yes, Andy. Well, it kind of ignores sanctification because, you know, as your relationship with God grows, those things start to fall away. I yeah. mean, it's not an instant thing. Mm -hmm. it's, know, a it's, it's a process. It's a process. It's yep. a gradual process. Yeah, well, what we call sanctification is that growth in Christ-likeness. It doesn't happen all at once. It's that process of becoming more and more like him. But the part of the um, paradox of sanctification is that as you are growing more in that Christ-likeness and that holiness, you don't become more self-righteous or you don't come have more of a sense of Boy, what a, what a good boy am I. Like, wow, I'm really sinning a lot less. But the more sanctified we become, the more we realize, whoa, I'm way worse than I thought, right? I'm way worse than I thought. So, okay. Uh, yeah, Esther and then Paul. Well, you know, I'm listening to all this. We are the people of the way. Yes. In, in, in the church. Yeah. You know, and it's not, Jesus didn't call us to necessarily beat on everybody with words but with action that's the way to beat on them with action is that what you said <laughs> <laughs> to act act with love. love exactly yes you know and, and that's when what peter says when people ask you 
about the yes. hope that is within you, and you can get an answer. Yeah. You're ready to give an answer, but so often just keep your mouth shut and love them. Right. That's right. Yeah, it's elicited by the, the acts of love and lives of hope. That's right. Um, Paul, and then, uh, sorry. Mm -hmm. This, uh, what gives you the right, brought me to two people that I worked with yeah. in my work life. One I didn't work directly for, but he was a boss, and he clearly claimed he was the best Christian ever came down the pike. <laughs> <laughs> and what I'm leading to is we are often our own worst enemy when answering this question with people. He said, if I know somebody's gay that's working for me, I will find a way to fire them. Mm -hmm. He clearly stated that. Right. And I said, you can't do that. And he said, watch me. Watch me. Then the second case was someone, two people that worked for me, one who was clearly gay, yeah. one who was Bible-thumping from the get-go. Yeah. And we ran into a situation where that person who thought he was the best thing ever was, it turned into, I would call that hate speech. <laughs> well, who do you think got fired? <laughs> I had to fire him. Boy, really? The, yeah. The person who thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. Wow. Not the other person. Interesting. Yeah. And, and just those to me were examples of we we have many people in our midst. Even maybe we've even said something. Sure. That makes people feel like what gives you the right. Yeah. Mm. Yep. That's a that's a great point. Yeah, David. Go ahead. Um, this is not original by any means, but as you look at Jesus in his life, you see who he attracted. And that always stunned me. Yeah. Well, I always thought I was a good Christian, and you know, Jesus just loves me, because I'm just really attracted. Right. And then you read something like Luke 15. Yeah. And uh, this one of the, right before the parables of the, of the good shepherd, or the lost sheep, I should say, and the lost coin, and the lost sons. And it says, all these sinners were being attracted to him when the Pharisees came. Yeah. Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, told them this parable. It makes me think that Jesus had the reputation of being a friend of sinners. Yeah. It's a reputation the church is dangerously close to losing. Right. Right. That's a, yeah, that's a, a really good point. That uh, You're known by the company you keep. We use that in a way that, okay, yeah, so I should be just, you know, with good people. And it's good. That's good advice. That's good advice. But that Jesus... He's the, the friend of tax collectors and sinners. And thank God. Uh, thank God for that. Friends, friends of us. Now, let's be unequivocal about this. God has a, uh, has a law, has a will for us um, that people live contrary to it. And we're not saying it doesn't matter. I'm saying it doesn't matter in the lives of others. I'm not saying it doesn't matter in our life. But what we're saying is that what matters most is that relationship with Christ. And that the, um, the law is lived in the context of that relationship. The law convicts us, but ultimately its goal is not what we're justified by. It drives us to Jesus. Jesus is who we need. That's, that's the only source of hope that we have. It's the only source of hope that we have. Jesus said, I've not come for those who are well, but for those who are sick. So, good. Great conversation today, guys. Thank you very much. We'll continue next week, and uh, we'll see you then.